0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Titus. We'll be looking today at chapter 2. You can find the text printed in your bulletin on page 8. If you didn't bring a Bible and would like to follow along in one, we have them provided there in the pews, and it can be found on page 998. So we'll be looking at Titus chapter 2 in just a few moments. I've had a moderate appreciation for sports throughout my life. Um, Moderation's a good thing, right? But then I married an avid football fan and uh, became much more acquainted with the ins and outs of football. I've also been watching some shows that take you behind the scenes into the dynamics at play in soccer or the true football sport, so... Um, So I'm becoming more and more acquainted in these things as life goes on. And one of the things that I'm noticing that I just find fascinating is how much coaching actually matters. You might just watch a game on TV or if you're there in person and you just notice the person's talent, but we may lose sight of how much that has been shaped by the coaching staff and the training that has taken place. It's amazing to watch how you can take The same player, and they could perform poorly on one team, and then they come under different coaching, and they thrive. It's a fascinating thing. Our training matters. And you don't have to participate in sports to understand the importance of training, do you? Uh, There are many different things that require it. Our, Our jobs, we're trained in these skills, in the arts, in parenting, in hobbies. It's everywhere. Training for life is everywhere. And we all are actually seeking some sort of training, some sort of coaching of how to navigate life itself, aren't we? How do we make it through the day? How do we live a life that at the end of it we could say that was a well-lived life? And there are many different coaches and trainings that are available to answer these questions, aren't there? All the various religions are seeking to answer that question of what is a life well lived? What, how do you succeed in this life? And then there are all sorts of non-religious, quote-unquote, ways of examining the answers to that question. But often if we boil them all down, what we find at the heart of them is they all work according to the same rules. That if you do good, you will earn some sort of reward, life will work out better, whether that's just a better eternity or that's a better life here and now or some sort of inner peace as you just rise above it all. I think what's unfortunate is that sometimes one of the things that can happen for us is that Christianity becomes just a new playbook for the same coach. (laughs) We... um, become Christians, and it's like a new set of instructions is giving to that, given to that old way of training that says, oh, you're a Christian now. Got it. Here, pull out this playbook. Okay, so these things aren't okay for you now. These things are okay, but don't, do, don't enjoy them too much because, well, then that wouldn't be very Christian either. Uh, but it's just the same old story with a different playbook. But that's not how the gospel works, is it? The way that the gospel works is as we come to Christ, we receive an entire new coaching staff. We come under an entirely different way of training that is completely different than any other type of training that is being offered out there in the world. And sure, we may still look like all the other players. If you're watching from the outside, a lot of things may seem the same, But in reality, what the gospel does is it changes our entire view of the game. And so our passage this morning explains for us what this training is and how this training is to work in our daily lives. And that training is the training of grace. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So here our passage in Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray and ask our God's help as we consider his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would train us this morning by your grace, that your spirit would use your word to help us see more fully your glory and grace that is shown to us in our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would soften our hearts where they are hard. We pray that you would strengthen our faith where it is weak. We pray that you would meet us in our doubts and in our questions and concerns of this life. We pray that you would show us the beauty of your plan of salvation for us that we have even now through faith in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider this passage, we'll look at it in three points. Um, Three points regarding past, present, and future. Grace appeared, grace trains, and grace will appear. Grace appeared, grace trains, and grace will appear. So first of all, let's consider this passage. Point about how grace appeared and we find that right away in verse 11. Our passage begins with the words for the grace of God has appeared. Now remember what we considered last week. Paul has been instructing Titus in the good and healthy doctrine that he's supposed to be teaching and speaking about in the church. And one of the things that was fascinating about last week is if we would think of good and healthy doctrine as systematic theology, Paul has a much bigger idea of what good and healthy doctrine is because he immediately moves on to say good and healthy doctrine involves the fact that everyone, men and women, young and old, are all growing in godliness in the church. And that's what good and healthy doctrine Produces. And so we saw this snapshot that he gives of what it looks like for a church to be growing in this. And then we resume in our passage and he says, For the grace of God has appeared. What that means is this that that entire way of living for everyone in the church is rooted and grounded in this truth of God's grace that has appeared. It's what makes all of the difference. And so before we talk about God's grace appearing, let's just spend a few moments thinking about what God's grace is. It's a term that we can throw around so much that it starts to mean very little to us, doesn't it? The name of our church is Grace Bible Church. So I see it a lot, and I say it a lot. But then as I come to preach a sermon on it, there's that nagging question, but what really is it? How do we capture the beauty and wonder of it? Well, we can start simply with what grace means. Grace is demerited favor. Demerited favor. Someone deserves or merits something, and what they merit is disfavor. What they earn is disfavor. But instead, grace says you have earned disfavor but I bestow favor upon you. We've all experienced grace in our lives in various ways, just on a human level, right? You can probably think back to times when you have really blown it. You failed to show up for something or whatever it might be, and someone goes easy on us, right? I deserved getting chewed out, but instead I received, it's all right, and in fact, I already did it for you. And we've probably shown grace to people, Someone has probably failed us in life, and we've said, you know what, it's okay. We all are people who experience and show grace from time to time. But when it comes to God's grace, it's essential to realize that grace is a part of his character. When God reveals himself to Moses back in Exodus 34.6, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, merciful, And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this fact that part of God's character is graciousness is repeated throughout Scripture. It's repeated in the Old Testament. And then when we come to the New Testament, Paul says this amazing thing um, multiple times in Ephesians 1 and 2. He says that God himself is rich in grace He just has storehouses of grace. It just flows out of his abundance. And so it's important to realize that grace isn't just something that showed up in Exodus when God says that he's gracious, or as we're going to look at when it appears in our our Lord Jesus Christ. Graciousness, the graciousness of God, is rooted in who God has always been as he's related in the three persons of the Trinity before time ever began. The three persons of the Godhead Father, Son, Holy Spirit they're not gracious with one another per se, because grace involves demerited favor, right? None of them is demeriting the other. Uh, They all share in one holy essence together and are therefore perfect in the relationship to one another. But when Jesus speaks of his relationship with the Father before the world began in John 14 to 16, he says that he, Father and Son, have existed from all eternity in this mutual, self-giving love and goodness toward each other. Self-giving love and goodness in a context of no sin between the persons of the Trinity. And that self-giving love and goodness spills over and it extends beyond them into creation. They created a universe to display their glory and to show their goodness, love, and favor. And that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. But then once sin entered the picture, God's goodness is now shown to humanity in grace because humanity has merited disfavor. And yet God continues to show us favor that we don't deserve. And the Bible tells us that the whole world is a recipient of the daily grace of God. It's what we call common grace, that instead of, Enduring judgment day after day, which is what we as sinful people actually have merited, the sun rises and rain comes, even upon the ungodly, in God's common grace. Blessings of life continue to those who only deserve God's judgment. And so we see how rich God's grace is, but there's even more. Our passage says that the grace of God appeared and it appeared bringing salvation. God also gives this favor, this grace that is what we call his saving grace to those who trust him. And that saving grace that we receive, it's not because of what we deserve, right? That wouldn't even make sense. It wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. But in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says that he, being God, saved us, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, and now hear this part of it, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace given to us in Christ before the ages began. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see how big the concept of grace is. Showing favor to those who do not deserve it is a part of God's character. He shows it every day as we continue to live in this world. And if you are in Christ, if you are trusting him, he has shown you that grace before time even began. That has been his disposition toward you. But our passage says that the grace of God has appeared. God's favor Toward sinners, it appeared, it became visible. And that word, therefore, appeared is the same word from which we get our term epiphany. It captures the idea that when it came on the scene, it was splendid and glorious. It, It burst onto the scene in stunning glory. And this is what we've heard about in our scripture reading. It's the incarnation. When the eternal Son of God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And what John says is that he revealed the glory of God as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, in his incarnation, in his self-giving death, in his perfect life, he has revealed the glory and grace of God in a fuller way than had ever happened before even though it's something that goes all the way back from eternity. And through faith in him, what does John say? We come to receive grace upon grace, favor and blessing upon favor and blessing. It is through Jesus that we come to receive the fullness of the grace of God's salvation. And it says he comes, has appeared bringing salvation For all people. This doesn't mean that all people are saved by this grace. As we've seen already in Titus, some will reject it, they will not receive it. Some will even adamantly oppose the grace of God. But when he says it is, it brings salvation for all people, it's a way of speaking of how this salvation is not for just one type of person or just for Jews in the Old Testament, but now, as was the plan all along, it is a salvation that is for all people. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, young, old. It's no accident that this phrase, all people, comes on the heels of speaking of bondservants. Because grace comes saving people from the highest in society all the way to the lowest. No one is excluded from this offer of God's favor, God's grace. And that offer is for you today. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, the offer of God's saving, special grace for you in Jesus Christ is extended even as you hear it this morning. That if you repent of your sin and turn in faith to Christ, you will receive the favor of God. I know that's a lot of theology to start off a sermon, (laughs) especially on daylight savings time, where right now our bodies say it's lunchtime and we're ready for a nap. Why does it matter to talk about all of this? As Paul speaks of a sound doctrine, of a life that's godly, it's all rooted and grounded in grace. God's favor that he pours out on sinners. You know what often happens is we think of grace as too small. (laughs) I read this verse and it says, Grace appeared and what I hear is, in my head is like those in the movies when you see the radar screen and there was just a blip that came and went. Grace appeared. That's great. It happened when Jesus was here, but that's it. And what Paul wants us to see is he says, wait a minute. Before you even think about living the Christian life, I need you to do this. I need you to look back and see where grace has come from. That it is in the very character of God and that he has chosen before time began to lavish favor and blessing upon you. And that favor and blessing appeared, became visible in Jesus Christ when he came. And if you are trusting in him, God's favor is upon you in the foundation of everything about the Christian life. And what that actually does is if God's grace is really that big, if it's that eternal in that sense, then can it ebb and flow in our lives based on our performance? It can't. His favor is upon you because of his character and his action toward you. And so it's a beautiful thing that when we realize grace has appeared, but that's not the end of the story with grace. It's actually kind of just the beginning. Paul then calls us to see what God's grace is now doing in us in the present. And that brings us to our second point. Not only did grace appear, but secondly, grace trains. Grace trains us. You can look with me at the text in verse 12. If we resume the thought of verse 11, it says, The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice that it says grace trains us, doesn't it? Grace isn't just something that gets the whole thing started. (laughs) I'll be gracious, I'll forgive their sins, and then you all can just kind of figure that out. No, God's favor is depicted in Scripture as constantly coming to us to train us, to instruct us, to daily mentor us. When? Now, in the present age. God's grace is the coach or the teacher who is each day shaping us into being different and better people. Well, what does this training look like? It's actually really simple. It's a twofold rhythm. Grace trains us to say no to who we were and yes to who we are. Grace trains us to say no to who we were and yes to who we are. And, and let's just consider those things as they come to us in the text. First, grace trains us to say no to who we were. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce there, it's a really strong word. It means to disown. It means to say, this thing is no longer a part of my life. I disown it. And what is it that grace trains us to disown or renounce? Ungodliness. That's a phrase that's that's loaded in the New Testament. We think, I think the Most important thing to keep in mind when we hear it is Romans 1. It's this state of ungodliness that happens after the fall whereby although God's attributes are prominently displayed and his truth is there, we as fallen people are saying no to God and we're suppressing his truth and we're taking his gifts and we're distorting them and worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. He's saying it teaches us to say no to that whole way of living of how we were apart from his grace. And it teaches us to say no to worldly passions. Passions and desires are not wrong. They're not even wrong for reformed people. We can experience passion and joy and delight and excitement. It's part of the image-bearing of God that we have. But notice it doesn't say, teaches us to say no to passions, but it says saying no to worldly passions. Those passions that have now been shaped by this fallen state of humanity where they become bent in directions that bring destruction and harm rather than good and flourishing. It's when we pursue things that are forbidden or we pursue them in a way that's not in accord with God's good and life-giving design. And so do you see what this is saying here? We used to live in a way that said no to God. A life that leads to all kinds of harm, a life that ultimately leads to death. But grace, God's favor comes to us and says, you can now say no to that former way of life now that's an amazing thing but it's also a gracious no it's a no that's shaped by grace how do you hear the say no of training and godliness it's easy for us to think of an angry coach yelling at us from the sideline You think you're going to win like that? (laughs) If you want any chance of blessing or favor, you better get it together and say no to the stupid way of playing. We hear it like that, don't we? But Paul tells us how to hear the no that grace actually teaches us. In verse 14 it says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all unlawlessness. Redeem is one of the most loaded theological words in our Bibles. It's so beautiful. At its core, it means to buy back or to set free. And the greatest Old Testament example of this is is the Israelites being freed from slavery, being redeemed from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And you see, we're naturally trained to hear God telling us to say no in order to get out of Egypt. Stop doing these bad things, Israelites, and I'll set you free from Egypt. But instead, God's grace comes to us in Jesus and it says, you don't have to live this way anymore. By my grace, by my favor, I've already brought you out and set you free. I have parted the Red Sea and Pharaoh has gone down to the depths of the grave. You are now delivered from Egypt. The promised land is yours. You don't have to make bricks for Pharaoh anymore because Jesus gave himself to redeem us from what? From all lawlessness. That entire way of life. And so God's grace trains us to say no to who we once were. But God's grace doesn't stop there in this training process. It also tells us and trains us to say yes to who we now are. I think this is one of the biggest things that we can miss as Christians. We can often, in our accountability in our thinking about the Christian life, we focus a lot on defense, saying no to those things. But you know what, grammatically, is the most important thing in this section? To live. It's the main verb that's there. The yes is theologically and grammatically the thing that Paul wants us not to miss. It's yes, it's saying no, but there's this bigger thing that we're saying yes to in grace. And it's not that we spend our entire lives just on defense and never understand the thrill and the blessing and the wonder of scoring a goal on offense. (laughs) And that's what grace teaches us and shapes us to be. It says God's grace trains us to live life as it was meant to be. And he uses three terms to describe this, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those three terms, we could spend all morning talking about them. And um, since we changed the time and gained an hour or something, why not, right? (laughs) But I think what's important to understand is that those three terms, they encompass all of life in a beautiful way. Self-controlled is referring to our inner life, our thoughts, and then also the way we act out of those thoughts and emotions. Upright speaks of our relationship before other people living in an upright way. And godly speaks of our vertical relationship with him as those who are godly in the Old Testament are those who walk with, relate rightly to God himself. So do you see all of that? Grace is teaching us to say yes to this way of living that has been made new inwardly and is different in how it relates to others and is different in how it relates to God being restored to who we were made to be as God's image bearers. And again, this yes that grace trains us in, it's a gracious yes. It comes to us solely by God's favor. Verse 14 again tells us that Jesus not only gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, but also to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Redeem speaks of setting free. In the Exodus, purify speaks of removing sin's defilement. Redeeming is bringing someone through the Red Sea out of Egypt. Purifying is God coming to his people and helping them with all that they had seen and done while they were in Egypt. And teaching them, shaping them to be his royal priests. I think of purifying as just this beautiful phrase of affection and removing all that has gone wrong. Living in a fallen world takes a toll on us, doesn't it? Living with hearts that have been bent by sin, we cultivate habits that hurt ourselves and others. As we've been hurt by others, it deeply and profoundly shapes us and continues to affect us sometimes long after salvation begins. But in that word, purify, God's grace comes to us. And bit by bit, moment by moment, is wiping away the defilement, wiping away the shame, straightening what has been bent and twisted by sin, and orienting us in a way that is toward God. And this is by God's grace. Jesus gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you hear the love in that phrase? There's kind of a creepy way we could hear it, give himself a people for his own possession, but it's not this possessive, distorted, domineering way that Jesus comes to us and takes us to himself. It's the language of what God promises Israel in the Old Testament, that you will be my treasured possession that you will be my favorite people, the people I choose to hang out with day after day in the greatest sense of the word. It's the language that we come to understand of as being Christ's bride in Ephesians 5. Jesus came by his grace to set us free from our sin, but also so we could be united to him in love forever. God's grace comes to us and it shapes us Into those kind of people. It washes us through the Word by the Spirit, removing all of the defilement and shame of what we have done and of what has been done to us in this fallen world. And Paul says the result is we are people who are zealous for good works. We are so passionately loved by Christ that we come to love the things that he loves. And his grace produces in us a passion, a zeal, to show his goodness, his glory, his holiness, his grace to the world, both in the church and outside the church, through our passion for doing good in the name of Christ. Again, that's kind of a lot of theology but what does it look like practically for grace to come to us and to train us? A goal that I have for today is that we could all walk out of here understanding that God's favor is with us from beginning to end, and it's a favor that teaches us to say no, and it teaches us to say yes. And we think of that handle of how it does this in every area of lives, that of our lives, how it helps us to live godly lives and that at that root, that's our relationship with God. We come to the Christian life with very messed up views of God. Many of us want to cower from him in fear because of the demands that he places upon us. Many of us want nothing to do with him because he stops every good thing in this world. Others of us think we're fine and that he should be happy with the, the things that we do. But the grace of God comes to us and it finds us and says no to the wrong ways of thinking about God that we might have. No, he's not a harsh taskmaster or judge. He has come to you in favor and in grace. And it teaches us the yes of walking with God and coming to him in that grace. A grace that says yes to he has come to us that we could have a relationship with him. Yes, we do wrong. Bring it to Him. He already knows it. Repent. Yes, we need His help every day. Bring it to Him and ask for continued favor and grace. It trains us in having right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And it trains us in self-control. Grace comes to us and we are complicated inwardly, aren't we? Am I, I think other people would know this too, but maybe I'm just really messed up. But there's a lot that swirls around inside of us, isn't there? There are things that we hope people never know that we have done. There are aspects of our personality that we may be pushing down for fear that others would come to know who we really are. And there are parts of us that we love and delight in and want others to know and experience, right? Well, God comes to us in his grace saying, I perfectly know who you are In your deepest self, I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know your passion for justice. I know the way you care about what others think. I know how much truth means to you. I know how logical you are. I know how much you feel. And his grace comes to us and it says, I can show you the ways that those things about who I made you can go wrong. And I can teach you to say no to the ways that they bring harm to yourself and they bring harm to others. I can teach you to say no to those distorted things about the wonder of how I made you. And I come to you in my grace and my favor, and I teach you the divine yes. The yes to the ways he made us to flourish and thrive in good works, toward others of the people he has brought into our lives in our homes in our neighborhoods at our workplaces there's a yes of good works that he has uniquely wired you and made you to address by his grace that trains us and as his grace shapes us we come to live upright lives not lives that can barely look up because of the shame that we feel over the things that we've done or have been done to us, not lives that only look up and snub our noses at all those around us because we think we're better than we are, but those who understand that they are sons and daughters of the King of kings and who walk uprightly as those who have been sent in this world to represent him in every aspect of our lives. So God's favor... It comes to us every moment of every day, training us to say no to the way we once were and training us to say yes to who he has made us to be and how he's renewing us each day in the image of Christ. So not only has God's grace appeared in the past and is training us now in the present, there's even better news. We save it for point number three. Grace will appear. Grace will appear. Now you may say, wait a minute, I was listening. I know that grace appeared. Good. It appears again. And it appears again. It says in verse 13, part of what grace trains us for is that we will be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Part of what grace trains us for is, is waiting for another appearing. Waiting can sound like just standing around. It can sound like just passively waiting for the bus to come or a website page to load, right? But the term has much more expectancy than that. The waiting is what's mentioned of Anna and Simeon at the temple as day after day and night after night, they are waiting for the Messiah to appear. They devoted their entire lives to this waiting and they were looking for it to come every day. And so also, we live in eager expectation that today might be the day of our blessed hope. Biblical hope is not a wish. I hope the Packers will do better this year. Biblical hope is something that we're confident is going to come. Earlier in Titus, Paul says, God who never lies promised us eternal life before the ages began. The God who can't lie promised the reality of our hope. And our hope, this passage says, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is one of the strongest attestations, the most explicit references to the divinity of Jesus Christ. God was mentioned as our Savior earlier. Here, Jesus is our great God and Savior. And we see the unity of the Father and Son both in their divinity and also in their saving work. But what we are waiting for, Christ's appearing, is called our blessed hope. What do you think of when you hear the word blessed? I just think of a polite southern word ah bless her soul bless their soul it's this kind of code word for something about politeness blessed here is not just tacked on to hope because paul was trying to hit a certain word count our hope our confidence is in the blessedness that will be when christ returns it will be when jesus returns It will be when all of the blessings of what God has promised us will be experienced in their fullness. Blessing is the goal of God's salvation. That we would be forgiven and that we would be purified. Why? So that we can be with God in his presence. And so that the blessed one, God himself, the one from whom all blessing flows will dwell with us forever. And so if we think about this in terms of grace, what it means is when Jesus appears, the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's favor appears and it will be ours forever as we experience his favor, his blessedness, blessedness from all eternity. You see, our life with God is truly grace from the beginning all the way to the end. And this is what Paul tells Titus to declare to the church, exhorting everyone to believe it, rebuking those who speak against it. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, this grace from beginning to end Is what we as your elders are committed to be speaking about, preaching about, counseling in, training in, living in here at Grace Bible Church. We began by thinking about the importance of coaching or training in our lives. When we think about coaching or training, it's actually a very personal concept, isn't it? The, the coach or the trainer who works with us every day, right? One of the things that I think happens when we think about grace is we so quickly think about it as some sort of substance. And we don't think of it in a personal way. Throughout this week, I've been, you know, knowing that I have to preach on grace And I've been struggling with various things, inwardly, outwardly. We could talk about all that later. All you need to know, been struggling. And then thinking in the moment, I'm preaching a sermon on this, and the sermon text says that grace is here in the moment for me to say no and to say yes. And in those moments, I realize that part of what I'm looking for or expecting in it is like some sort of substance to come to me in that moment. Like that first cup of coffee and the caffeine that then makes you say, Ah, grace is here. Now I will act godly. (laughs) That's a substance-based view of grace, isn't it? And it didn't happen. In that moment, I never felt that. And you know what I started to wonder? How can I preach on this? (laughs) What's wrong? Is God wrong about this or is something wrong with me? Like, what is going on here? But I was reminded of the fact of this, that the Bible doesn't say that grace is a substance that God gives us so that we all of a sudden do something rightly. Ultimately, God's favor and God's grace is that he gives us himself. What could bring us more favor or blessing than God giving us himself? And that's what Paul is calling us to see in the moment as our lives are being trained by grace. That no matter where we are, no matter what life is calling us to, from all eternity, the triune God has agreed together that they would do whatever it takes to bring sinners like you and me into the blessedness of the presence of God. The Father choosing us from all eternity to set his love upon us and to send his Son. The Son saying, I will take on flesh and I will go and I will live a perfect life. I will die on their behalf to pay for every time they live in ungodliness and so that they can be purified to live in the way they were created to be. And the Spirit himself saying, I will be sent from the Father and the Son to bring God's presence and salvation to those whom God has chosen. God's grace, God's favorable presence is in us now through the Son and by the Spirit. By his grace, he has given us himself and he is with us training us every moment of every day. And one day, when our blessed hope occurs, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will come. And we will know what it means to live in the unending favor of God. But there will be a difference to our training in grace, won't there? because we will then experience it with a body and soul whereby we no longer have to say no to who we were, but we, every moment of our eternal existence, are saying yes to the blessedness of God, body and soul, and that blessedness will never end. It's God's grace from beginning to end. Let's pray and give him thanks. Our Father in heaven, words cannot adequately express the grace of God that has appeared to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is now with us by the Spirit and that one day we will experience in the fullness of glorification in your presence forever. Will you strengthen our faith in what your scriptures say is true about you, about who you are, and about your favor toward us each moment of every day? And will you strengthen us to walk as those who are being trained every day by your grace and your favor? We ask for this all in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.